Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is June the 8th, 2021. It's 11 a.m. in San Francisco, California. Um, and it's 1 p.m. in Texas. We haven't done a show on Texas recently, so I thought it would be a good opportunity to talk all things Texan today, particularly uh, Texan history. Uh, as I speak, um, the governor of Texas, uh, a man called uh, Abbott, uh, Greg Abbott, is signing a bill to promote patriotic education and increase the awareness of Texas values. I thought that would have been Texan values or whether they're Texas or Texas values. Um, clearly, the culture wars are raging down in Texas. Um, uh, Abbott has written uh, that um, he has a new project, the 1836 project. The year 1836 has particular resonance. We will discover on today's show. Um, it's a law uh, committed to um, promoting awareness among Texan residents uh, about the the value, the uniqueness of Texan uh, culture and Texan history. Uh, here he is tweeting today. Uh, he says, I signed a law establishing the 1836 project, which promotes patriotic education and ensures future generations understand Texan values. He says uh, that Texas is the best state in the nation. We can never forget why our state is so exceptional. Together, we will keep our rich history alive through this 1836 project. Uh, not everyone, of course, um, agrees. Uh, the New York Times, as always, reminding us of other realities is suggesting about this kind of thing, that Texas is pushing to obscure the state's history of racism and slavery. Um, every morning in, in Texas, uh, according to the Times, Texas kids recite in their school, recite an oath to their state that includes the word, I pledge allegiance to thee, Texas, one state under God. Um, 1836, of course, was uh, the year of the Alamo. Uh, this was something that the New York Times writes about, uh, the Battle of the Alamo. Remember the Alamo is something that uh, all, all American school children know, whether they're Texan or otherwise. Uh, the Battle of the Alamo is, of course, covered on Wikipedia, but it's an increasingly controversial subject and it brings to the boil many of the themes both on the light on the right and the left when it comes to the culture wars of 2021 so we're very very lucky today to have one of the three authors of a new book called forget the alamo the rise and fall of an american uh myth um his name is uh, Brian Burrows, and uh, he um, he is talking to me from 
Austin, Texas. Uh, Brian, in our pre-interview interview, interview, I said that you should have called the book Fuck the Alamo, and you said that Forget the Alamo was a much more explosive title. Why? You cannot fully appreciate unless you've spent a lot of time down here, uh, because I don't think other states have creation myths. How sacred the Alamo um, and the Texas creation myth is um, to Texas identity, especially Anglo Texas identity. It is at the beating heart of the entire notion of, as Abbott uh, alludes, uh, uh, the entire notion of Texas exceptionalism. That idea, deeply held by generations of Texans, that Texans are somehow a cut above the Delawares and Rhode Islands and certainly the Californias of the world. You write in the book, um, the, the story, and I'm quoting here, the story of the Alamo is simple, right? Davy Crockett, Jim Bowie, uh, William Barrett, Travis, and a bunch of their friends come to Texas to start new lives, suddenly realize they are being oppressed by the Mexican dictator Santa Ana and rush off to do battle with him at an old Spanish mission in San Antonio. That, of course, is the myth that you expose and forget the Alamo. Uh, Brian, tell me the real story. What really happened at the Alamo? Well, there's two types of myths you can address. Those about the battle and the siege itself, um, and those about the under, underlying causes of what's always been called the Texas Revolution, but was in fact a secessionist revolt. You know, the primary myths, and I think the most controversial, are those surrounding the reasons for the revolution. Uh, for going on 200 years, Texas school children have been taught, and most Americans understand that Texans revolted because they were oppressed by the dastardly Mexican di dictator Santa Ana. In fact, I think we establish in the book, as a generation of scholars have established before us, that the Texans were not oppressed by any means. In fact, they had more rights than uh, any other Me Mexican citizens because they'd been complaining so much over the previous 15 years. Um, I think the keenest myth, the most controversial here, is the underlying cause of the revolution, which you can certainly cite any number of things from clash of cultures to ethnic hatred to taxes. But we argue, and I think scholars have argued, that the underlying cause here was slavery, that the, the American colonists who began coming to Texas in 1820 uh, came to do one thing, and that was to farm cotton. And the only way they knew, knew how to do it uh, was, 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 was slaves. The new Mexican government of 1821, which uh, came in uh, after declaring its independence from Spain, was firmly and ardently abolitionist and repeatedly over the next 10, 15 years did everything they could to outlaw um, slavery in Texas. Time and again, uh, the Texans fought back, declared that everyone would leave without slaves, and pretty much every time uh, the Mexicans gave in. Um, ultimately, um, you know, the Texans, you know, put away threatening to, you know, to leave and basically said that they would threaten to fight. And that's ultimately what happened. This was the underlying cause. I mean, if you ignore slavery, it's, it's like saying the American Revolution was about tea. Uh, and then when you look at the myths of the, uh, of the battle itself, the glorious, you know... Uh, mm. Well, let, let, let's get on to the, the battle itself a, a little later in our conversation, Brian. So you, you talk, um, and, and here's a map of, for, for those people watching, Texas in 1836. 
very briefly lay out its geography. Did Texas in 1836 look the same? I mean, it, it, it was part of the Mexican empire. Is that correct? It was the northernmost province of Mexico. It had, as of 1820, before the Americans came in, barely 4,000 people. I mean, there are Manhattan skyscrapers that have more people than Texas did in 1820. Um, They were clustered into three towns, the largest of which was San Antonio, which was the de facto capital. Um, And Which was essentially a mission, rather like the missions of California. It had a mission beside it, but there was an independent town uh, alongside it, yes. And the, the, the province of Texas was under, under unrelenting pressure from the Comanches who, had, who were raiding into the state from north and west to steal uh, pretty much every horse and mule not in a corral and selling them to uh, the Americans in Louisiana. That onslaught meant that the Mexican government which had never been able to get Mexicans to colonize Texas in any serious way, um, uh, accepted uh, the entreaties of uh, a young impresario named Stephen F. Austin to bring in American families to begin settling uh, Texas. And over the next 15 years, he brought in several thousand American colonists, which increasingly became restive and restless. So it's a standard narrative. It's a... Uh, a sort of a, a post-colonial revolt. Is that fair? I guess that's, yeah, that, that, that's fair. In other words, uh, the Texans came in, they thought the Mexicans were subhuman and pretty much thought and acted as if they were still in America. Uh, and despite all the things that, you know, Santa Ana gave them, tax amnesties, relief from various uh, laws, uh, there was it was never enough for the Texans. And, you know, it, the final straw ultimately was when um, the Texans actually tr- the, the Mexican government actually tried to collect tax taxes from the Texans. And the Texans reacted by shooting uh, some Mexican soldiers and beginning the revolt. Brian, we've done a number of shows about the value of indigenous cultures in contemporary democracy. Um, were there elements of democracy in, in, in the Mexican state? Was there uh, a degree of federalism, of self-rule for the small amount of settlers in Texas before the the revolt? In fact, that was the primary tension between the central government and its provinces was the degree of centralized control. It swung back and forth. Every two years, a centralist government would take over, then a federalist government. The Texans, of course, absolutely adored federalism because it allowed them in large in a large way to maintain slavery, to maintain their slave-based economic system. And it was when uh, federalism, in essence, became kind of a code word for slavery, uh, for protecting slavery in Texas. And so so why, why, um, why were the Mexicans against slavery? Was it because uh, s- slavery was a, as, as a race-based system, or were they morally opposed to the, the very institution of it? I'd say both, but you have to remember that the Mexican revolt for independence that brought Mexico independence in 1821, 15 years before the Alamo, brought to power for the first time the Mexican populace and brought into a Congress mestizos, people of mixed race, who very keenly did not want um, to continue um, uh, oppressing people of color. And so 
it was, it's difficult, it was very difficult for Americans, Anglos at the time, and can still be difficult today for Americans to understand that in this revolt, the Mexican government really had the moral high ground in that it was attempting to uh, abolish slavery and the Texans were doing everything possible to preserve it. Uh, you begin the book with a quote from John Steinbeck. Um, uh, Steinbeck wrote, uh, I have said that Texas is a state of mind, but I think it is more than that. It is a mystique closely approximating a religion. Um, is the Alamo story, uh, the the myth, uh, the, the, the Christmas narrative uh, uh, under, uh, uh, underlining the, the, the Texan religion, is it the core uh, story? It is, it is the genesis, if you will, of the Texas creation myth. The idea that these white settlers came here, carved something out of the wilderness, uh, that uh, you know, they basically inhabited this great wilderness and made it into uh, the independent nation of Texas as it became after the revolt. This narrative, of course, entirely precludes the Tejanos, the Mexican, the Mexican, Mexican Americans who were already here before they before the Americans came in. And in fact, who were the by and large were the Americans' crucial allies during the revolution? And in fact, a number of them fought and died at the Alamo. These people, as a totality, were entirely not only written out of 200 years of Texas history, but were, in, especially in the 19th century, were largely pushed out of uh, San Antonio and much of South Texas with prohib prohibitive laws passed against their ability to marry white women and hold public office. It was a, you know, it was a kind of ethnic cleansing. And the, the heroic Anglo narrative that is taught in schools entirely entirely ignores um, this part of the story. And the reason, one reason that matters is Latinos and Texans are poised any year now to become, an, uh, to become um, a majority in Texas. And so we are- Yeah, well, we'll talk about, I, I want to talk about contemporary Texas later in the conversation, Brian. But in this sense, there's nothing particularly unique about Texas. Uh, the South- and perhaps even California and, and Midwestern states were writing the same narrative, telling the same lies. So there's nothing particularly surprising or unusual about this myth at the heart of Texans' self-conception, is there? I would just say that what is unique about it is the degree to which it is embraced as a symbol of a state um, identity. How many states, if you, if, I, I suppose in California, there are people who walk around proud that they're Californians, okay? I don't think there's a lot of people doing that in Iowa uh, or, or Wisconsin to the degree that it has done here, that it is done here. Texas, and I grew up here. I, you know, I, I, I went but you weren't born there, Brian. Maybe that what makes you so oh, no. um, have such distance. Why you're willing to forget the Alamo while others aren't? You outed me. I went off to school in Missouri and hung a Texas flag for my wall. So, but I have to say, much of this was entirely new to me uh, until my co-author Chris Tomlinson came to a breakfast one morning and kind of laid out a lot of this stuff. And you know, I I was still drinking Texas tea, I did not realize. And uh, I learned an awful lot in this. And in trying to impart this, you know, not in a preachy, beat people over the head way, but uh, hey, realize that there's more to the story 
uh, more to the historical Alamo than you may know. Right. And, 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 and that's one of the lovely things I think about this book. Um, I've really been enjoying it this morning. It's extremely engaging, sort of semi-folksy without being too sweet. Uh, it's a fun book, but it's also very serious in its own way. Very briefly, Brian, tell me the history of the battle of the Alamo. Well, uh, there are three maps uh, for people watching this as opposed to uh, just listening. Uh, the three maps in your book. The first is of Santa Ana's march into Texas in 1836. Very briefly, explain why he marched and, and, and what it resulted in. And, and here was the the, the, the the Mexican, I guess, governor or military authority coming to establish order in their province. Is that fair? Yes. Very briefly, in late 1835, the, the American colonists revolted and they took San Antonio. Santa Ana then marched an army up from Mexico into Texas to retake San Antonio and put down the rebellion. Uh, a group of uh, roughly, give or take, 200 uh, American colonists and Tejanos inhabited the this old mission outside uh, San Antonio called the Alamo. And despite copious warnings, that enormous army of like 6,000 Mexican soldiers were descending on them. William Travis, the commander, decided to stay there and defend the Alamo with his 200 defenders. Um, and things did not go well. And what about uh, the third map is the San Jacinto campaign. Why is that so important? Um, this was the campaign of April 1836. Why is that so important in the, the mythology of the Alamo story? The San Jacinto campaign is key because after the fall of the Alamo, after everyone was killed, uh, Santa Ana then proceeded... And that's true. There's no lies there. They did. They all did meet their fate yes there is there is abundant controversy over who doubt who died how and why but yes they all died we know that uh and after the battle after the siege santa anna marched on to the east toward present-day houston to pacify the rest uh, of the province the importance of the alamo and the genesis of the alamo myth is in the battle cry that houston instilled in his soldiers remember the alamo which very clearly uh, uh, energized his troops enough to where they actually beat uh, San, uh, uh, Santa Ana at the Battle of San Jacinto six weeks after the Alamo, thus laying the way for Texas independence. But you're saying that's basically a lie, that the whole narrative doesn't reflect any great heroism on the part of white Americans. Is that fair? Not at the Alamo. It's hard to argue that. I mean, the narrative has always been that these heroic Anglos, you know, you know, told Santa Ana to go screw himself and fought to the last man. In fact, we know there was no reason for these people to be there, that when surrounded by Santa Ana, they not once but twice offered to surrender. Uh, Santa Ana said no, he wanted them all dead as an example, and that ultimately when the Mexican troops uh, stormed the old mission, um, we now know from recent scholarship that the defenders did not die fighting in place to a man, that as many as half of them fled uh, fled the walls and were run down, slaughtered ignominiously by Mexican cavalry. The funny thing about your book, Forget the Alamo, um, The Rise and Fall of an American Myth, is it does everything except forget the Alamo. Your 
encouraging us to remember the Alamo, but it's a different kind of Alamo. You're, uh, and perhaps on this show, we're doing a different kind of 1836 project. And it's appropriate, of course, uh, Brian, for our age. How does this fit into a post-George Floyd uh, America? Well, it, it's, it's, I would argue, as you would expect, that I think it's particularly timely. It's not only demographics in Texas uh, make it right to be looking at this, but at a time where the entire country is undergoing a sweeping reassessment of its, reass- uh, of its racial history, Texas is largely... Well, not the entire, I mean, let's be fair, Brian, not the entire country, maybe 60 or 70% of the country, whereas the other 30 or 40% are very much clinging to the traditional narrative. They're remembering the Alamo. Absolutely. I, I meant that that, you know, academia and the media, you could you could probably agree, are are interested in a reassessment of our racial, racial history. Well, the New York Times, for sure, but certainly not Fox News or, or some other traditional outlets. So let's be fair here. Absolutely. That that's certainly fair. Um, uh, it's a little surprising that Texas history has kind of gotten a pass uh, during all of this, in part because so little of the alternative history, if you will, we would argue the actual history has been kind of buried in, you know, scholarly journals and ignored over the last 30, 40 years of its development. Um, What we're arguing for or hoping for is not some liberal reassessment of the Alamo, but a a reexamination of the historical Alamo, what actually happened as as about what people wish had happened and that has been taught and written for going on 200 years. It's largely a fanciful narrative and we're just arguing to embrace the facts as journalists and pesky authors sometimes do. Brian, it's not just Texans who have fetishized the Alamo. For better or worse, a lot of uh, washed up old rock and roll stars are also obsessed with it. You begin your book with uh, not only uh, Phil Collins, the the ultimate fetishist of uh, the Alamo, but um, Ozzy Osbourne and the Rolling Stones. What is it about uh, geriatric British rock stars that make them so obsessed with the Alamo? Uh, I'm not quite sure. Phil Collins has said, and Phil Collins has the world's largest collection of memorabilia. Phil Collins has said... <laughs> I think I I think that's somewhat embarrassing. I think if he has, he shouldn't be telling anyone. He has given it to this. He has loaned it to the state of Texas. Texas (laughs) could be the centerpiece of a new reimagining of the Alamo, a new Alamo museum. Uh, Phil Collins has said that he believes that he was there in a previous life, and that the narrative uh, uh, is timeless and speaks to him. And that would seem to be the case. Uh, Ozzy, you mean you believe he was there? No, I believe that he- that's what he believes. Ozzy, of uh, course, does that mean that does that suggest that he's insane? It's it suggests it, it suggests that he has a unique viewpoint. How about we say that? That's a nice Texan way of putting it, Brian. I try. But 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 why why is Collins so obsessed? I mean, beyond the sort of self mythologizing. Um, has he bought into it? And, and is it not just Collins and Ozzy Osbourne and the Rolling Stones? It's become the kind of worldwide brand of Texas, hasn't it, the Alamo? It really has. And we trace that large, you know, up for about 150, 140 years, the Alamo was kind of a Texas thing. And then two things really happened, three things. One, uh, a television series in the 1950s 
uh, about Davy Crockett put on by Disney, which was enormously popular and brought the Alamo to the world, if you will, followed shortly thereafter by the actor John Wayne's movie, The Alamo, a colossal uh, a bomb in 1960, but which nevertheless brought the Alamo story, the Alamo legend, if you will, um, to the rest of the world, followed then by the first uh, Texan in, in the White House, Lyndon Johnson, who absolutely lived and breathed the Alamo to the extent that he once claimed falsely that he had an ancestor who fought there. You write, um, uh, and I'm quoting you here, you say, for the past 50 years, the United States and Texas have struggled imperfectly and inconsistently to address the white supremacy that underpinned our social, economic, and spiritual life since the first enslaved person arrived in North America in 1619. Um, and then you go on, we must recognize that the Battle of the Alamo was as much about slavery as the Civil War was about slavery. How dark is the history of Texas when it comes to Jim Crow and racism? And how much can we locate this uh, because of the the mythologizing, to put it euphemistically, or just the lie of the Alamo? It's pretty dark. Um, it is dark in very much the same way in its dealing with uh, African-Americans as much of the South was. Texas was very much part of the South and, of course, seceded it during the Civil War. But Texas has the added stain, if you will, of its treatment of Mexican-Americans, uh, Latinos, uh, who, while they, not but are they treated differently, Mexican uh, Americans, Latinos, as 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 Black Americans, or are they basically all bundled together? Well, uh, up until the Civil War, they were treated uh, differently in that they were not properly enslaved, um, but they were. I think anybody would have to acknowledge they were oppressed and treated as a second or third class uh, of populace, uh, and certainly that has extend, extended well into the 20th century. Um, so. You know, Texas has, um, you know, a pretty dark racial past. As we speak, not only is Governor Abbott making all sorts of pronouncements about his 1836 project, but there's a big debate about a $450 million proposed renovation of the, uh, the Alamo site. Uh, this is in the Washington Post in, in San, San Antonio. It's become, in a, in a classic um, post-George Floyd, uh, Black Lives Matter America, it's become a, an issue of great um, cultural debate, again, to put it euphemistically. Um, how, and you suggest in the book, um, Brian, that there is an increasingly vocal uh, group within the African-American, Hispanic, and indeed, I guess, progressive white community that, that want indeed to forget or at least to rewrite the Alamo. How, 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 um, how much of a live wire is the debate about the Alamo now in Texas? It is very much a live wire. Um, and the funny thing is this whole effort to reimagine the Alamo, which let's be clear, as a place to visit has always been a disappointment. For generations of Texas, a small, dim chapel, uh, a small, pretty, uninspiring museum. The Texans have been talking about what to do about the Alamo for 50 years. Um, and the process that began about a decade ago began as a very inclusive thing led by the government 
that brought in Latin America, that brought in Mexican Americans, the, the Native American community, African Americans, Anglos, everybody. And unfortunately, once those plans were unveiled for what we might call a more inclusive, uh, all-encompassing uh, version of the uh, the Alamo narrative, when that once that went public, um, there, let's just say there was a lot of conservative pushback. And by and large, those plans have been shunted aside. Uh, you know, they, it, it's right now it's up in the, up in the air exactly what's going to happen. Uh, we haven't made that whole discussion much easier by discovering and writing about in the book the fact that much of this collection that Phil Collins is donating as the centerpiece of this new Alamo um, would appear to be fake. At the very least, it has very little, uh, very little uh, in the way of authentication. You couldn't make this stuff up, Brian, could you? <laughs> Look, we didn't go into this knowing we were getting up writing, you know, two chapters about Phil Collins' fake Alamo collection, but that's what we ended up doing. Um, if you're interested, an excerpt uh, to that effect is on the, the cover of the current issue of Texas Monthly. You write, um, uh, we're in a sort of summary, no history doesn't really change, but the way we view it does. In Texas... The history written by generations of white people is now being challenged by those who see the same events very differently. And man, oh man, does that piss a lot of people off. This is, of course, I guess, in, in a way, a summary of your book, uh, Forget the Alamo, which is your way of saying fuck the Alamo. Um, but it's no joke pissing these people off. Texas is the state of Governor Abbott. It's the state of Ted Cruz. It's the state of an increasingly angry, articulate right-wing rebellion. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a state with a lot of support for Donald Trump. How fearful are you that Texas might indeed become a, um, one of the states where there is, and, and of course it's a state which actively and aggressively fights any kind of gun laws. How, how worried are you about civil war in, in, in Texas or, or, or Texas becoming a place that that somehow um, ignites civil war in America between an increasingly intolerant right and left uh, and increasingly incapable of talking to one another? Well, while acknowledging every inch of the polarization that so defines public discourse right now, civil war is not something I've really got uh, uh, given a lot of thought to. Um, if you live in Texas, as I have often on my entire life, you get certain. You get used to a certain amount of vocal right-wing sentiment, especially among the dominant Anglo politicos. Um, but Texas is also uh, an incredibly fast-growing state with an incredibly fast-growing Latino population and people pouring in from your California and from seemingly every other state in the union. I sit here in Austin, and I'm telling you, the out-of-state plates here are there's more of them than, than Texas plates. I think sometimes so. I think it's arguable that the that the kind of vocal um, conservative sentiment you seem you see now in Texas is 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 destined for all uh, all the years to come. I think Texas un is undergoing a lot of change, uh, and it's going to be interesting to see you know where this stands in five years, in ten, and certainly in twenty. But what happens if these white Texans, the the Texans of Ted Cruz and Governor Abbott, what happens when they become, which seems fairly inevitable, the minority in political terms? Well, do you think they may resort to violence? They're well-armed. 
They resist the state, and indeed, with the mythology of the Alamo, they have historical precedents to justify rebellion. Look, anything is possible. I'm not a political writer. I write history. Well, uh, you are a political writer. You, you, you write political. I mean, your, your histories are, and this history at least, is extremely political. Um, and yet I don't traffic in writing about Texas politics as it exists at this moment. Uh, I don't sit here actively worried about right-wing violence. I note, uh, you know, when uh, militia types occupy the Alamo as they've done in camo with AK-47s and angry banners, you know, one kind of goes, you, you sigh if you're in Texas. There is, there, there is that element. But that element exists throughout the United States right now. It's inescapable and unavoidable. Well, Brian, you've dodged the question in a very smart way. I wanted to get you to say something outrageous. You refused to. You've, you've, you've maintained your decorum in spite of all Phil Collins's lies about the Alamo. Your book is a wonderful read. You're one of the authors with uh, Chris Tomlinson and Jason Stanford of Forget the Alamo. The Rise and Fall of an American Myth, a very timely book, a very well-written, entertaining, and erudite book. Must read for anyone who cares about American history and Texan history. So congratulations on the book. As you mentioned, you're in Texas in these strange times. Um, uh, your, your governor has signed a bill banning vaccine passports, which probably means you're not going to be allowed out of Texas for a while because uh, we're not going to have you. Um, what should people be reading if they're stuck in Texas? Although most people will be probably happy to be stuck in Texas. Uh, in addition to forget the Alamo in these strange post-COVID times, Brian. I would recommend my friend Beverly Lowry's 1992 book called Crossed Over, which is a fascinating portrait and memoir of a woman, uh, a double murderer who sat on uh, death row in Texas for a few years, became quite a cause celeb. Uh, and I, it's, it's, it's mesmerizing. It's, it was, uh, it's masterpiece. I, I crossed over. I recommend it. Well, Brian, uh, Burrow is the author of six books, uh, best-selling books, his latest, Forget the Alamo. I think it will be a bestseller. It's timely. It's well-written. It's fun. It's entertaining and it's important. Congratulations, Brian. Keep well in Ox Austin, Texas. And when I leave California, I'll probably become your neighbor. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.